listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello, I'm Fran Barber. And I'm Monica Melanchthon. And Monica and I are talking about some readings for the 15th week after Pentecost, namely Exodus 12, verses 1 to 14, another pivotal text in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, We will talk also about Psalm 149 and Matthew 18, 15 to 20. So to start... Uh, Monica, let's have a look at the Exodus 12 passage of the first Passover instituted, as um, the NRSV headlines it. This has a very interesting narrative context that perhaps not all our listeners will uh, know about. Do you want to fill us in a bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, If you read the chapters before chapter 12, you will learn that God had, um, uh, Yahweh had already announced you know, uh, these plagues that will come upon Israel. And they were uh, nine judgments, you know, three cycles of of three. All of these had fallen upon the land of Egypt and Pharaoh was still hard-hearted and was refusing to let the Israelites go. And so... um, and so just before our text, Moses announces one final judgment, okay, uh, yet to come, and that is the death of the firstborn uh, of Egypt. Uh, so between the record of this declaration made by Bo- Moses in chapter 11 and the event of the judgment, we read this institution of the Passover. So in a way, these instructions given about the Passover is ha- uh, takes place in between the uh, declaration of the 10th plague and the implementation. So it's an, so it's almost a disruption it in a, a way disruption. to the action, but also it's placing. We we hear of the power of God in these these terrible acts, mm-hmm. um, and I suppose we are to read God's power just as equally in this um, liturgy or yeah this yeah. practice. Yeah, and therefore there are scholars like Fretheim who suggest that. Uh, that one has to read uh, Genesis, uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 12 from a liturgical perspective uh, because at the centre of the chapter is this, uh, are these instructions given about a liturgical tradition, the celebration of the Passover meal, which is so fundamental and crucial and central to Jewish identity. And uh, in fact, he goes further to suggest that it was, uh, it was a practice uh, which had to be rooted within a historical context, and so therefore the liturgical practice actually shaped the narrative. Yeah. So you know, as you as if a child says, "Why do we do this, Mum and Dad?" Mm. Yeah. They go back and go, "Well, we do it because um, these events occurred, yeah. and um, yeah. God decreed." So that. there's a story behind the practice. Yeah. So yeah. it's quite an ordered um, <clears throat> set of proceedings of the word of the liturgist, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, what are some key are there, are there key words or images here that you would bring to people's attention particularly? Um, I would first of all like to uh, stress the fact that this is a very foundational narrative, okay, for uh, for uh, for Israel, and um, and it is through the Passover that Israel is constituted as a nation, uh, and from it. Israel derives its fundamental meaning as to who uh, who we are. This ritual is also a commemoration and memorialization of uh, um, the final act 
which actually uh, led to their release from bondage uh, to slavery and, and so onto path uh, onto the path of liberation liberation i'm just thinking it, it's pivotal in the same way the cross is for christians yes 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 yeah so um <clears throat> so therefore uh you know it is it is as you have uh, when we talked about this before you said it is it is uh interesting that it doesn't ha- it hap- it happens within the domestic sphere mm. you know it's not like a public in a temple or yeah, yeah 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 or in the synagogue yes. so yeah so i was bringing to mind the dramatic sight that it would have been in those ancient streets um and seeing all of the blood rushing and people outside and it all happening at the same time at twilight yeah, yeah. is huge drama. Yeah. So it is it is it is a sacrificial foundation, mm. you know, uh, to this uh, and 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 um throughout the book of Exodus as well we read where Yahweh continuously reminds the people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So therefore, you know, it it is what Yahweh does uh it is yahweh's intervention that has actually led to the liberation of the people of uh of israel so yeah, yeah. <coughs> I, i'm struck by um a phrase here when it's talking about the lambs that um there seems to be an allowance that some people won't be able to afford a lamb mm-hmm. or that the household is too small to have their own lamb and so even in, the detail here is such that that's taken into account. So there's a real sort of communal, you know, a communal flavour to what's happening and a recognition of the least. Yes. And so there is, there's sharing that is being emphasised. There is also um, uh, an emphasis on not hoarding. So mm. you might have a very big lamb, but make sure that you eat it all that, or you burn it, you know. But you don't keep it for the for the next uh, for the next day. And I think what is interesting is that it is a meal that is supposed to uh, commemorate the 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 hurried nature uh, of of uh, of departure. You know, so it's like they they are in a rush to leave, and therefore they have to eat uh, quickly, mm. cook quickly, eat quickly. I was really struck by reading the reading this this time um, that your loins are girded, your sandals on your feet, your staffs in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. Mm-hmm. I was also it caught my eye because in last week's um, reading Moses was told to take his shoes off, <laughs> so <laughs> I was struck by okay, you know, yeah, footwear, yeah, footwear, footwear, and is symbolic or not, you know? Yes, yeah, yeah, of the moment, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so yeah. Um, uh, what else can I say about uh, about this text? Um, um, I think for uh, it is important to uh, recognize the connections that one can make between the Passover meal uh, and the um, and the Eucharist. Okay, that is so central to our identity as Christians. Um, it also represents uh, the day of resurrection and new life, uh, which which is uh, which for the Israelites in this instance is a is a is a day of liberation and freedom uh, from uh, from slavery and a commemoration of God's mighty acts of uh, of deliverance. So um, uh, today, I think when the Jews continue to celebrate this uh, this meal, uh, it symbolizes the coming of a new exodus um, by which the kingdom of God is to arrive. And I think if you think of first century um, first century CE when the Jews were celebrating this Passover, 
uh, it was released that God, what God did for their ancestors um, in the Exodus narrative, God will do again for the Jews in first century, in the first century, mm. as they were uh, countering and coping and suffering uh, Roman uh, oppression. It strikes me for a preacher that these this reading is so rich for um, a sermon that is about liturgy and how liturgy shapes our lives or um, or could much more than we perhaps in the West allow it to. That what happen what's happening here? Well, first I, th- I hear that it's an ordinance. Um, they're being reminded because people forget. We are f- we are a forgetful people, and so we are we are reminded by the by these stories. But by this ritual and this liturgy, um, and Christianly speaking, I don't know whether you'd say this in the Jewish faith, but it's a remembering, but it's also a representing of Christ. It's a recapitulation of um, the grace and the resurrection, and um, not a simple memorial. No, but something happens. Something happens. Something yes. happens that brings in all creation and every flawed person there and every doubting person and um, the mess and the squalor um, as well as the love that, uh-huh. that is there. Yeah. And that um, liturgy does remake, has the power to remake us um, and I think – I'm not sure how often that's explored. Yeah. I think it's also um, significant that, that liturgy here uh, can become an avenue through which uh, you are reminded of your history. Mm. You know, uh, we often think of litur- liturgy, at least I do, in the moment. <laughs> uh, don't necessarily think about what happened in the past. But but I think through this narrative uh, – uh, what is emphasized is the fact that uh, all of our liturgical traditions have a historical basis, perhaps. Mm, mm. And it is good to be reminded of what uh, meaning or role uh, those traditions played and what, what role they play today. Yeah. And this, this is a fabulous text to spring off from that. Um, the f- last thing I'd want to highlight, um, well, it's not really the last thing, but what comes to mind, um, is is the particularity of the food here, apart from the lamb, we have the unleavened bread, which I understand to be unleavened because of the um, speed with which this needs to happen, but also the bitter herbs, which um, place at the centre of all this a recognition of the people's pain and suffering. This is not something that's glossed over or um, dismissed or um, or not recognised. Yeah. yeah, and that's important that you keep, uh, you know, the joy of what is to come uh, in balance with what has been experienced. So you don't forget, you know, the pain and, and the suffering that you have endured, uh, but also, uh, yeah, and to keep that, to hold that intention with the, with, the, with the salvation or the deliverance that you will soon be experiencing. Is there anything um, in the text, I'm thinking um, of the colonised and the, and um, those colonising, there's dynamics here, obviously, of, of people in oppression. I'm just wondering if there's a reading we can make of this text which wants to challenge it in any way. Mm. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, no, I just wondered whether there was anything um, anything here for, that would... Yeah, I think... Um I, 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 as I was thinking about this text, the first um, 
the first thought that came <laughs> to my mind is also the the importance uh, uh, the important role that Anzac plays in the history of oh, Australia yeah. you know um uh, which uh, which is again uh, to do with uh, to do with war and and bloodshed and 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 suffering and conflict um and so i just i just wondered what the role uh, of the practice of war how mm, do, what mm. what role does the practice of war play uh, in the uh, sacrificial economy of the state so here you have the sacrifice of the firstborn of egypt you know uh, which has contributed therefore to the deliverance and freedom of israel and and the sacrificial the sacrifices that people make for for the, for the nation uh and and is that worth it or um i don't know i don't no, know no i don't know yeah we don't know. i i don't know uh, i think it's uh, uh, it's an interesting uh, and complex issue uh that at the center of so much of our faith is this is this this question or question, this tension yeah. or 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 a problem yeah a problem yeah well we're not going to resolve that but we will <laughs> move to psalm 149 Psalm 149 is right at the end of the book of Psalms. It's one of the last 5, isn't it? Yes, it's one of the last 5 which is uh, and all the, all those last 5 are identified as declarations of praise or songs of uh, thanksgiving or normally called hallelujah psalms. Mm, I begin yeah. hallelujah mm, praise right. the lord. Yeah. This is rich for use in liturgy of course. Um today. Yes. It's called a worship or yes, or a blessing. But this one um so it, the the those last few psalms all talk about parts of creation praising the lord this one here seems to focus particularly on the faithful yes uh, before we go to that particular aspect of the psalm i just want to talk about the fact that when you look at the psalter as a whole mm-hmm. there is a movement there's a uh, so you will find that a majority of the laments are found in the first part of the psalter and as you move towards 150 you will see that there's an increase in the number of psalms that are identified as praise so there's a, there's a movement from lament to praise which brugemann also calls a movement from disorientation to restoration or orientation and so these final psalms are like you know the the climax mm. uh, of praise that that offers uh, that is offered to god and of course the, all of the created order animals birds you know the sun the moon the heavenly bodies the cosmos and of course human beings are called to to praise god and to uh, to thank god uh, for who god is and for all the wonderful things that god has done uh in god's you know in our in our mm. lives and so in this particular psalm yes as you have pointed out the focus is on the faithful people uh it's a phrase that uh that is used that comes up three times uh in the in the psalm and actually it is a phrase that structures the psalm it appears uh in mm. verse 1 in verse 5 and in verse 9 so um so it uh it it uh yeah it structures the uh the psalm and it is a it is a call to the faithful people uh to uh to the celebration to sing and to praise god with with a new song um it it seems to me to put them at a at the at a center in a manner of speaking that they may not necessarily have been in before in the psalm so we've had the psalms of david mm-hmm. um and the 
you know, the, the king. Yes. But the people here seem to have um, taken on a new import or a fresh import or a fresh centrality to the triumphal um, praise of God. Yeah, I mean, the, there are there are some uh, scholars who will who will say that this was a psalm that was perhaps sung at the coronation of the king. <laughs> ah. So it's not completely lost. And connections are made with Psalm two and Psalm mm. uh, between Psalm two and Psalm one hundred and forty nine. Um, that that maybe this was the psalm that was sung in some kind of a royal context where, uh, or in enthronement either of the king or an uh, an enth- uh, you know uh, an enthronement of Yahweh. So so there. There are some royal motifs mm. uh, that could be uh, can, uh, ascribed to this to this particular uh, particular psalm, but basically it is a psalm of celebration, uh, a new song uh, sung at the appearance of a new reality. And so, you know, for example, a new king is being crowned. Then it is a new it's a new beginning. Mm. Uh, um, and so it is it is those kinds of settings uh, in which the psalm may have been used uh, but but basically it's a psalm that is uh, that is calling the faithful to to praise uh, to celebrate this uh, the appearance of a new reality new life new creation new harmony new reliability on this uh, on god and yeah. as you say having faced um, fair and square, the lament and the sorrow of life, you know, at the yes. beginning of the Psalter, this is utter jubilation. Yes. Um, and um, one that's rich for singing, actually. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if Psalm 149 yeah. set to music in our hymn books. I'm probably. I'm not sure. <laughs> Have a look, folks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's an element of surprise in this, uh, in this psalm. Uh, and newness, uh, and therefore it's a call uh, uh, for praise to God who has ushered in uh, who has ushered in this new reality. Um, <clears throat> yeah, um, so it's it's a very simple. The structure is very very simple uh, and uh, just made up of three parts. Verse five is the is the central uh, central part of the psalm, and the first four vo- uh, four uh, verses um, is a. <clears throat> is a call to praise and verses 6 to 9 is similarly again a call to praise uh, in verse 6 and it, clo- it closes with a declaration that the faithful faithful ones are exp- experiencing the glory and the splendor. Mm. They uh, seem to have some power in ex- executing vengeance on the nations. Well, <laughs> part of the uh, part of uh, the uh, a characteristic feature of the Psalms, um, uh, particularly in the laments, but also in in uh, in the uh, in the Psalms of praise, is this element of uh, the vanquishing of the mm. enemies. You know, and this is part of the uh, of the fe- of, of the feature of the liberating mm. uh, and delivering God, who is able to squash. Uh, squash the enemies and so and that is also a matter uh, for praise yes yes yeah and of course those of us who are uh, uncomfortable with the issues of i mean with with violence uh, you know will not be happy uh, that this is uh, uh, this is something uh, that is uh, praiseworthy <laughs> uh, but for the people of that time who have gone through uh, you know conflict and suffering due to uh, these enemies mm. maybe uh, 
you know a neighboring nation or mm. uh, or babylon or assyria whoever it might be or egypt you know uh, and they have gone through uh, untold misery mm. uh, under the under the oppression of those nations and of so, course there are people all over the globe who could yeah. very just as easily speak of enemies in that same way and i think we in the west would sanitize that language often because it does appear um, immoderate and um, yeah. You know, not to to speak of enemies, but you know, one question is: Is your faith such um, that you can't adamantly say no to some to to, to, to evil spirit, I suppose, or you know, neo capitalism, or you know, that mm. in fact this language of enemies um, we shouldn't distance ourselves too far from. You could argue. Yeah, I think a recognition of the enemy is uh, is helpful. It help uh, it it uh, it. Um empowers the uh, the individual who is suffering to give vent to what he or she is uh, his experiencing and the psalmist therefore doesn't shy away from identifying the enemy uh, whereas i think we within the christian tradition have been uh, conditioned you know by jesus's saying about loving your mm. enemies that we don't we think it is it is not right therefore to to speak about uh, to speak about enemies um so uh, yeah so there's a difference of 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 uh, of um opinion here mm. but i think uh, when jesus says love your enemies that doesn't i don't think it necessarily means that you uh, that you not talk about them no or you acquiesce to the forces, forces that they're representing yeah. yeah let's move on to the gospel So we have before us Matthew eighteen fifteen to twenty. Um, a funny little passage. Um, I guess some context would be that it's um, one of the five collections of teachings in Matthew. Um, we've had one about discipleship in chapters five to seven, um, teaching about mission in chapter ten, um, the kingdom of heaven in chapter thirteen, and. We've come to this one, the sayings on life together or in Ecclesia. And then we'll come later in the last in Matthew 24, 25 to um, the, the end times, the, the end of all things. Um, so this one looks like it's just a good little set of rules for how to run community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, it's a discourse on church order. <laughs> uh, conveyed to the disciples uh, this this chapter, and it basically outlines church discipline. The entire chapter, you know, uh, outlines church discipline and hospitality, um, prompted by the question that begins the chapter, which is, "Who is the greatest in the kingdom of mm. heaven?" And so, in response to this question, uh, the theme of being little and low is presented mm. and expanded as the chapter progresses. So Jesus is calling upon the disciples uh, and those within the community, the faithful, uh, to welcome the least. Uh, to uh, And he wants those who might offend the little who are in uh, in the care of the community. Uh, and, then, uh, and he also says, should one wander away, then he or she needs to be searched and restored uh, into the community. Uh, and then we come to, uh, yeah, th- and that is the uh, that is the portion I think that is uh, that is our lesson for today. Uh, Something I read, someone I read did want to caution us against seeing the word ecclesia as referring to what we understand church to be with its councils and so on. That actually it's about the gathering faithful, yeah. not 
procedures. Yeah. Um, and that um, – so it's about people primarily um, and it's not about formalised exclusion. Um, it's about trying to care for the spiritual welfare of of everyone. Of everyone, yes. And actually there are uh, – there's one scholar uh, who's uh, – uh, some time ago, I remember reading that the, the ecclesia here, you know, uh, can be the family. Mm. <laughs> it it's, it doesn't have to be the church. It uh, you know, as we understand it, but it can be the family. It can be it can be uh, the nation. It can be a, a community of like-minded uh, individuals. Uh, it can also be the church. Yes. Yeah, it yeah. can also be the church. Uh, but basically, you know, how does a a, a group resolve uh, or Resolve, resolve problems and problems. Yes. There's also an important shift in um, language. So in verse 15, if any other member or sibling of the church sins against you, singular, so it's a singular you, and then um, which follows through until verse 18, when truly I tell you whatever you, plural. So it shifts to the communal quite explicitly, yeah. Yeah. explicitly there. Um and I think that that sentence too in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth is talking about things and not people. So that the verb things is neuter. It doesn't refer to people, so it's issues. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. And and I think what is important in this section is also the fact that uh, that's, that caring for the sinner, because we often think of mm. caring for the needy, but here it's caring for the sinner. It's caring for the sinner and the little one. And uh, and this is also equivalent to caring for Jesus himself, mm. you know. So when Jesus says, well, you know, when you feed someone, you are feeding Jesus. When you are, when you give a drink to a thirsty one, you are giving a drink to Jesus. But here it is caring for the sinner uh, uh, takes on new meaning when, uh, when Jesus, uh, and it is equated with uh, caring for, for Jesus. For Jesus. Yeah. I want to point out just to be a problem to people um, attention in the wider text here because what comes just before this reading is the parable of the lost sheep so the shepherd leaves all 99 to find the one little one um, and rejoices hugely and then after this passage um, is Jesus telling Peter that forgiveness that he'll need to forgive 70 times 7 that is an infinite number of times um, and then we have this appears contradicting that because it's saying, well, do this. If that doesn't work, do this. And if that doesn't work, well, treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile, which as an aside, I thought by now in Matthew that actually meant include them. <laughs> but it doesn't – I think that's not what's being meant here. It means exclude them from the holy centre. Yeah. So we've gone from all forgiveness to – Actually, there are limits here, and I, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. So with it's what an you're interesting saying. contradiction in the flow of the text. Yeah, but I think what 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 sometimes we do is when we identify someone as having done something wrong, the immediate response is cut them off, mm. you know, exclude them, uh, reject them. Uh, but here, I think Jesus is 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 saying. Try to do this first. Try to, do but the thing, the ultimate thing is though that it still doesn't work. So, th so that this is a failure of the seventy times seven. Okay. <laughs> like in a okay. matter of speaking, mm -hmm. because if we'd kept doing that, and anyway, this is not resolve. I mean, I think it is. 
Is it saying that it is actually humanly not possible? Although the passage here says, sounds simple, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. Mm. Well, but we, we, we constantly fail in inverted commas yes. at this sort of reconciliation. reconciliation. So yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's where I think the, the, the text can be confronting or confusing mm. um, but I guess that brings me back, and that's the binding and the loosing, that, that we, we're very good at binding, <laughs> not very no, good at loosing. loosing. And isn't this liturgy, like we've talked about, the liturgy in the Exodus of the Passover, where the people required God's intervention at loosing, in a manner of speaking. And for us it's the Eucharist or the, the remembering of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, mm. and that we bow to God in in our impasses, I think. Um, um, so I'm not probably not making it very clear for people to preach on, but I'm just saying it, there's contradictions and um, – but maybe this is being real about what we're really like and we're not good at the 70 times 7. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, conflict resolution is a complex process uh, and there are so many other factors that one needs to take into consideration when – uh, when one is trying to resolve differences mm. uh, within uh, within a community, and and factors such as you know uh, differences in race and culture and class, mm. I mean, we have to think of the church today and how all of those factors are also contributing to uh, to sometimes reinforcement of differences mm. rather than reconciliation mm. and oneness and uh, and unity. So um, so. <clears throat> But I think what the what the passage is calling for, if you want to look at it more deeply, is to uh, to address the issue by taking into consideration all of these uh, possible uh, factors that mm. can impede reconciliation, mm. that can impede unity and oneness uh, of the of the community, mm. and and that at the end it is before God that we all stand mm-hmm. mm. um, in the hope. And prayer that what we pray mm-hmm. <laughs> and how we live yeah. um, is to God's goodness and glory. Yeah, and I think it's important also to recognize that communities of faith, um, uh, they are not homogenous. <laughs> Right, and so there are uh, there are differences within the community, and therefore there is bound to be conflict. There's bound to be differences of opinion, uh, um, and so and so the text is is a challenge to all of us to find uh, strategies and ways in which we can address uh, these differences uh, of con- or conflict or conflicting uh, um, uh, issues uh, by uh, ensuring that the that the dignity of each individual is uh, is honored uh, uh, and uh, that we don't you know um, overrule someone's pain and suffering and complaint as uh, unjustified mm. <laughs> uh, without giving it uh, due listening yeah yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for the conversation, Monica. Thank you. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.